0: Well, hello everyone. I would love to be able to welcome you to worship today, but obviously we are still observing the concerns related to the coronavirus, and so we are still not having our weekly meetings together. Unfortunately, it looks like this will continue for some time, and very sadly, next Sunday is Easter, and we had contemplated the idea of maybe having an outdoor service and trying to find a way to be together, but it just doesn't look like that's feasible at this time based upon the information we have and the concerns that are still pretty significant about the um, spread of the virus. So we will continue to keep you up to date but hope that this time together in God's Word will be valuable and profitable, and at least our church can gather together around the same passage of Scripture and teaching And be joined together in that way. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at verses 18 through 29 this morning. Uh, Today this is the longest of the letters written to any of these seven churches. It follows a very similar outline to what we've seen before. There is a very significant uh, rebuke that is a part of this letter But you'll notice some familiar headings as we walk through this passage of Scripture together. So let's look at Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29 today. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and His feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her in a great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds." And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come." He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A very serious letter that has been written. Again, since this is God's eternal Word, it is relevant for all New Testament churches, all who profess to come under the authority of Almighty God and His Word and would profess to know Jesus as both Savior and Lord. So as you look at the first item in our outline, we see the messenger. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. So this message... That is being given is being given to the angel, the pastor, the leader, the elder, whoever the individual or individuals are that are responsible for the shepherding of the church. this is the person to whom Jesus himself is speaking now in this passage, the title that Jesus uses for himself is the Son of God. it is his most proper name. There is no allusion to some kind of a role or some kind of an other secondary name. He gives himself the title as the Son of God, which is what we know him to be. And this title affirms without any debate, without any shadow of a doubt, his absolute authority not only to say the things that he says, but to do what he says he's going to do as a result of what is taking place in this church. His authority, this proper name as the Son of God, affirms His deity, that He is God, that He is sovereign over all of the world that He has created. It affirms His unique position as the right hand of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, and it encompasses all of the attributes of God, and it includes all of the work of God that has been communicated to us through Scripture. Now, there are two specific examples of the work of God That are intrinsic in this description that he gives himself as the Son of God. The first one is this his eyes. His eyes are like a flame of fire and it communicates his penetrating gaze. Just like last week when we looked at the church at Pergamum, Jesus came as a sharp two-edged sword and it spoke something about not only his attribute but also about the kind of work that it is that he would perform. This penetrating gaze is a laser-like penetration to see into the hearts of mankind as it also includes seeing all that mankind does. This penetrating gaze, this eyes that are like a flame of fire, examines our thoughts, our motives, our priorities. It sees past the mask that we wear or the charade that we live as professing Christians, and it boils down to the very person that we are as God God sees us. Make no mistake about it, we cannot hide from Him there's nothing that we can say or think or do that he is not aware of. And this is what is communicated in this penetrating gaze of the Son of God. Secondly, we see his feet. His feet are like burnished bronze and it speaks of his purity and of his holiness. The visual idea here is the idea of metal that is white hot. Have you ever seen Metal turned to red, and after it's turned to red, it turns to a white color, indicating the intensity and the ferocity of the heat that is now in that metal. It is so bright that you can often not even look at it with your natural eyes. You need some kind of a mask or some kind of a sunglass in order to protect your eyes from what it is you're seeing. So, his feet that are like burnished bronze speak of his purity and his holiness, and it indicates his action that he, the Son of God, is moving to trample out all sin and all unholiness. And we must be reminded that that is going to begin within the house of God. And this is what Jesus is communicating to us here, is that with his penetrating eyes and with his feet that are like burning bronze, he is moving towards his church to do the work that is his to do as the Son of God, so this is the messenger, and now we 'll look at number two the, the his commendation to the church, verse nineteen he says, "I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater." Than at first. Now, this commendation is very moving. It is very encouraging, I'm quite sure. And I'm positive that we would love to stop after the commendation. But let's look at the five things that Jesus knows about this church. First of all, he knows about their love. He mentions specifically their love, and it would encompass not only a love for God, but also a love for mankind. It's an expression of a genuine love, one that is likely gospel-centered, and one that is coming from what was at one point a gospel-centered life. So he gives them accommodation for the love that he sees within their lives. Secondly, he sees their faithfulness. When he sees their faithfulness, he's not seeing a body of belief but instead, what he is seeing is a loyalty to live out what is professed to be true. That's one of the great marks of any professing Christian is do you say and do the same things? Do your words match your walk? Can you not only talk the talk, but do you walk the walk and back it up? Well, Jesus sees a faithfulness to what it is they profess to be true. Thirdly, he sees their ministry. This ministry is to the body. It's the same root word that we get for deacon, diakonos, and that is a servant, one who is serving and meeting the needs of those that are around him. It's meeting not only the physical needs, but it also is meeting the spiritual needs of the body. And this is what he is talking about when he sees their ministry. Fourthly, he sees their patient endurance. Now, he doesn't give any specifics about what he sees in terms of patience and endurance. Perhaps he sees in this group of people the endurance of what is being taught in their church, that we're going to look at in just a moment, but most likely, as was common in first century Christianity, People lived in very difficult times. They lived in very difficult circumstances. And it was possible that there was some kind of persecution that this church endured, although it's not specifically mentioned. But it wasn't uncommon for New Testament churches of the first century to live out their faith in very difficult times, much like many parts of the world do today. Number five, he sees their growth. He says you're doing more now than you were at first, now, if you remember all the way back at our first study of these seven churches and the mentioning of the church at Ephesus, they had left their first love. They were not doing what they did at the first, but this church is apparently doing more for the Lord and on flowing out of the relationship with the Lord than they were at their very beginning. And that should be true of us. What we're doing today for the Lord should be significantly greater than what we did as young baby Christians who were just beginning in our walk with God. Now, we have limitations with time and age and energy and other things, but we ought to be giving the Lord our very, very best. We ought to be striving to do more for Him than we did at first. And this is what Jesus is commending this church. For. Now, from the outside, everything looked great. By all accounts, it was a strong church. It was a flourishing church. It was one that was full of life and energy and a viable ministry that was likely meeting the needs of those around them. The commentator and author William Barclay says this, He says there's a warning here. A church which is crowded with people and which is a hive of energy is not necessarily a real church. It is possible for a church to be crowded because its people come to be entertained instead of instructed and to be soothed instead of confronted with the fact of sin and the offer of salvation. It may be a highly successful Christian club rather than a real Christian congregation. It is perhaps this very thing that is taking place in the life of of the church at Thyatira, as we look around our world today, most specifically the modern church movement that we see so prevalent within the United States today. Churches that gather to be encouraged and soothed and comforted and not convicted or challenged over sin and faithfulness and obedience. So we look now at the third point in our message today. We look at the rebuke, and as I mentioned earlier, This is a very significant rebuke. Here's what it says in verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, what is a part of this rebuke is very simply this. There is an unholy union that is taking place between the church and this individual that Jesus calls Jezebel. There is an unholy union between the church and what this person teaches and what this person does. The word tolerate there means permit. Now in Pergamum, The church we looked at last week, the pastor knew that some were holding fast to false teaching and they were living a sinful lifestyle. And they just refuse to deal with it. They might have said something like, well, this is going to be really difficult and it's going to be ugly. I don't have the effort and the energy to deal with this. So I'm just going to turn a willing blind eye and pray that God will convict them of their sin and they will repent and turn away from it. And everything will just kind of get fixed on its own. But this idea of tolerating is quite different here. The pastor appears to not only know about it, but to intentionally allow it and perhaps is even participating and embracing it himself. Now, the idea that is given here about this individual called Jezebel is one that we need to take just a moment to refresh our memories on. She was the wicked wife of, of King Ahab in around the year 833 B.C. She was a Phoenician princess of the Zidonians. And Ahab, who never really had a heart for God, married out of the Jewish faith and married this woman who was a practicing worshiper of idols and false gods. And Ahab had welcomed this woman as his wife into his life, into his home in such a way that the nation of Israel would suffer greatly because of it. Now Jezebel, as a worshiper of idols and false gods, hated the God of Israel and all who would ever speak for him. It's mentioned in 1 Kings 18.4, For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, and that was her mission, that was something that drove her, it was eradicating the worship of the Almighty God from the nation of Israel, and it was an attempt to kill off all who would ever dare to speak of His name. It is under her influence that the nation of Israel was led astray on an incredibly grand scale. Now Elijah was the prophet on the scene during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. And when he was leading when Ahab was leading the nation of Israel into the worship of false idols, it is Elijah who comes and issues the challenge to prove to himself and to all people once for all who the true God was. And that's when they had the big throwdown and Elijah summoned King Ahab to bring about all of the prophets to see which one, which God would actually burn up the offering on the altar. But here's what it says about the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel during this time. 1 Kings 18 and 19. Elijah says, Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So not only was Ahab allowing this false teaching to take place, but these false prophets, these 850 that are specifically mentioned here, were eating at the king's table and were enjoying fellowship with him unlike anything that had ever seen before. Ahab, Jezebel's husband, was simply a puppet in Jezebel's hand. In 1 Kings 21:25 it says this, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel his wife incited him. Now it's very likely that Ahab would have been a nominal leader of the nation of Israel spiritually, but because he was not committed and because he had allowed his wife Jezebel to introduce idolatrous worship and the lifestyle that would flow out of that, Ahab was swept away and was simply a puppet in her hand. So this false prophetess that is being mentioned here at the church at Thyatira is not the real name, but she's having the same influence on the pastor as Jezebel had on her husband, King Ahab. It is said here that this false prophetess teaches and leads my bondservants astray. Literally, that means instructs and deceives my people to wander. When we are taught wrongly, we will naturally wander away from the Lord. I don't know how we could do any different because the information that, we, that we're getting isn't factual, it isn't truthful, and it isn't going to lead us into a more committed walk With the Lord. These believers are described as bondservants, which means that these people were at one point very committed to the Lord. A bondservant was a willing servant, one who had been granted his freedom to leave his master's household, but willingly chose to stay there and serve because they loved and respected the master. That's the terminology that is used for these. Christians who are now being led astray. They lost their focus. They allowed something other than the absolute truth of God's word to guide their lives. And when that happens, bad things are going to come. So these bondservants who have been led astray have allowed a new and a different teaching to influence them. And although we don't know what Jezebel's teaching is specifically, It is mentioned here that it is immorality. The first thing that Jezebel taught was immorality. And as Jesus would mention later in this passage, adultery, it seemed that the holiness of the marriage bed was thrown away for the kind of promiscuous promiscuity that has plagued the Roman Empire through its entire existence and plagues our country today. There was great immorality within this church and that is very, very consistent with the act of idolatry. Idolatry is going to affect us because what we believe, it matters because it affects what we do. Now, we don't know the specifics of the idolatry that is mentioned here, but the pattern is the same. Immorality, new teaching, false teaching, idolatrous worship will diminish the authority of God's Word or it will intentionally dismiss the clear teaching of God's Word. And the result of that is that people are going to embrace something else and when that happens, we will likely give ourselves over to something other than God, and we will be led away into a life of immorality and idolatry. This happens time and time again. It's cyclical. When we get a hold of false teaching, when our lives are focused on something else, it's going to lead us away from the Lord and we will find ourselves... Potentially living a life of sin. What we believe matters because it affects what we do. If you don't believe it's wrong to steal, then you're not going to have any problem taking something that doesn't belong to you. If you don't believe that immorality would include sex outside of marriage, then you're likely going to be affected by that and pursue relationships that are displeasing to the Lord. What we believe matters because it's going to affect what we do. Now there's five important points in this rebuke that Jesus mentions to this church at the itera. Number one, notice His grace. It's amazing to me to think that Jesus can look at this church and see all that's taking place, just as He looks at our lives and sees and knows everything that's taking place, and yet he still extends grace. Verse 21a says, I gave her, Jezebel, time to repent. Now we don't know how that took place. We don't know if God spoke to her. We don't know if in her prayer time God did something. We don't know how God had given her time to repent. But that's exactly what Jesus says. He gives us time to repent. And when we are unwilling to repent then the rest of this rebuke becomes more probable for us as we look now number 2 in these in the points of this rebuke is notice her response verse 21b and she does not want to repent of him of her immorality whatever god did to stir her heart to expose to her the false beliefs the immoral lifestyle she refused She rejected. She turned away from that and continued to pursue the things that were most pleasing to her. This is exactly what it takes place in our world now. This is exactly what Jesus said when He came onto the scene and began His earthly ministry. John 3.19 says this, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You see, for those who don't know God and for those who aren't serious in pursuing an intimate relationship with God, when He convicts us, when He exposes our sin to us, when He moves us to repentance, if we choose not to do that, it exposes the reality that we love our sinfulness more than we love the light. Now, unfortunately, that is true in the lives of Christians. It shouldn't be true. And as God deals with our imperfections, with our frailties, with our own rebellious nature, He extends His grace and offers us an opportunity to repent. And brother and sister, when He does that, we really ought to act. The third thing that we see in this rebuke are the consequences. Verses 22 And 23, he says, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. So the first consequence that is mentioned here, letter A, is death. Now, I don't think most of us like to think that one of the potential consequences for our sin for our unrepented sin would be death. But this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Christians can fall into immorality and Christians can fall into idolatry and God is going to deal with that. He will judge that. He will punish that. He will deal with that individually as He desires and as He sees fit. But there's something special and something unique about this. For those who lead and teach others to follow them into immorality and into idolatry, which is a very serious sin, God reserves what seems to be a very different and a very special punishment for them. Jesus said in Matthew 18:6, as he gathered the children around him, he said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, Jesus isn't talking specifically about literal children as much as he is talking about his spiritual children who have the ability to be led astray by false teachers, led into immorality and into idolatry, and there is a very serious sin, excuse me, punishment reserved for those who who are guilty of such a thing. For Jezebel, it says specifically a bed of sickness, and a bed of sickness in the Bible is often used as a euphemism for death. And so Jesus is talking about what might come to her, this bed of sickness, but not only for her, but also for her children, her spiritual offspring. I will kill with pestilence. Pestilence means death. The Hebrew expression kill with death means that God will kill with the most sure and the most awful death that we can even begin to imagine. Whether that is a literal death or whether that speaks of the the spiritual death that comes to those who don't know God an eternity separated from Him in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whatever this means, you have to know that it is a terribly painful and disgusting death. Now Jezebel's death is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 9. After being confronted by the newly crowned and righteous king Yehu, she was thrown from an upstairs window. She landed on the, uh, the brick driveway, if you will. The new king went in to eat, and when he came out, her body had been devoured. There was nothing except her skull and the palms of her hands that remained. And just as was prophesied by Elijah, she was devoured by dogs. So we see, first of all, this consequence of death. Secondly, let her be, we see severe discipline. The words here are throw into great tribulation. And so those who commit adultery with her, these sinning Christians who know the truth and have rejected the truth to follow the immoral and the idolatrous ways of this Jezebel, these Christians who don't listen and who don't repent will be thrown into great tribulation, and Jesus says that I will kill them with her, this spiritual offspring. It's a very serious consequence that Jesus is speaking against this church and against all churches who would be led into this immorality and into this idolatrous life. God will punish us to get our attention. But when we refuse, when we are stubborn and rebellious, we may suffer the same fate as Jezebel. Now, the fourth part of this rebuke is the purpose. Notice what is said here in verse 23. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according... To your deeds. Now, the purpose here is very consistent with the works that were mentioned earlier as Jesus sees with this penetrating glare, and as he moves with these feet that are like burnished bronze, there is a warning to all believers nothing slips past his eyes. All churches, all believers must know this to be true. That God is an omnipresent God. He is an omniscient God. And He is aware of absolutely everything that takes place in our lives. In grace, He calls us to repent. In mercy, He chooses not to give us what we deserve. But there is a warning to all believers He who searches our minds and our hearts and knows all that we think and say and do, he will reward according to our deeds. There will be discipline and judgment for sin. There will be blessings and unquenchable joy for all who celebrate and treasure their union with him. So there is this purpose that is expressed as a part of this rebuke. He wants all the churches to know who he is and what he will do. And we need to listen very closely. Number five, lastly in this rebuke, notice the separation. Verse 24, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. As was common throughout the history of the nation of Israel, as is common in our churches today, there is and was a remnant of the faithful. He says that there are those who do not hold fast this teaching. They have not embraced it. They have not followed it. They are not pursuing it. They have not known the deep things of Satan, which is how this teaching is described. They have remained pure They have remained unstained, and Jesus says there is no burden on them. There is no weight of guilt. You see, when we walk uprightly with the Lord, when we confess and repent of our sin, when we listen to His call of repentance on our lives, when we're doing all we know to do, if the church is going to be disciplined, we will be spared, so it appears that not everybody who was in this church was guilty of the immorality or of the idolatry. There was a faithful remnant. So they didn't, near the, they didn't need to fear the judgment that was going to come to the unfaithful. But they would certainly be affected by it. We need to know that in our own lives today, even though we ourselves may not be punished by the Lord because of the sinfulness of the church we are a part of, when that church is punished, we will be greatly affected by it. There is a loss of friendship, there is a feeling of betrayal. There are those who question the sovereignty of God, the goodness and the faithfulness of God. They see what appeared to be the best of friends who have now walked away from their faith because of the discipline that comes at the righteous hand of God. Not only would the inside of the church be affected by this punishment and this discipline that would come, but the outside world who sees it would also be affected by that. When God punishes His church for its idolatry, for its immorality, for whatever God disciplines it for, it affects more than those punished, and it affects the witness of the church as the outside world sees what's taking place. One of the most difficult things in my lifetime as a Christian is seeing the disgrace that has come to those that preach and teach on TV and then get exposed publicly for a life of immorality, and all of the naysayers rear up and try to prove that Christianity is just a sham because of the unfaithful life of one who professed publicly of this unwavering love for the Lord. So there is no weight of guilt on this faithful remnant, but they would likely be affected by it. This... Takes us now to number four in our outline. Notice his instruction here, not verse 25. Very, very simple, very, very short. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. So, what he is saying is stay committed to the truth. The term here, hold fast, means it's not going to be easy. The church that you are a part of is going to be severely disciplined, it's going to face great judgment and it's going to be more difficult for you to maintain your faithfulness than it ever was before. Hold fast. Stay committed to the truth because when I come in judgment, it's going to be messy. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how popular it might be, we always will do well to hold fast, to stay committed to the truth, because God sees that, God honors and rewards that, and will give to us according to our deeds. Number five, lastly, we see the promise, verses 26 through 28. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what Christ says to the churches. Well, the first thing that is noticed in this promise is the overcomer. It is the one that stays faithful to the very end. There are churches filled with people who bail out when it gets hard, when life gets difficult, when something happens that they don't like or agree with or understand. But those who are the overcomers, those that are being given this promise are those that stay faithful To the very end. Now, there's two things that Jesus promises us in this. Number one, we will rule with Him. So, the mentioning of the giving of authority over the nations and ruling over them with a rod of iron, it comes out of Psalm 2 and it speaks of our participation with Christ when He sets up His earthly kingdom. We will share in the rule of this new Eden that God establishes. That will have no end. The Father has given all authority to the Son. And the Son is going to share that authority to rule in this new world when it is eventually inaugurated. So we will rule with Him. And that will be an incredible blessing to us. Secondly, He will give us Himself. He says, I will give him the morning star. Now this term morning star, some think that this refers to our reflecting the glory of Christ while on the earth. But it probably makes better sense to understand this, that Jesus is going to give to us himself. Not that we are going to reflect his glory, but he is going to give to us the morning star which is himself Jesus calls himself the morning star in Revelation 22:16 I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches I am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star the one whom we know in part we will know one day in all of the fullness and all of the glory That is in him. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then when this new kingdom is established. Then we will know face to face. Now I know in part. But then I will know fully. Just as I also had been fully known. So God's promise to us. Is that we will share in the rule of Christ. Over the new kingdom that he creates. At the inauguration of his New kingdom, which will have no end, and he will give to us his very self. Then, this promise is followed by an appeal. He who has an ear to hear, not the physical ears, but the spiritual ears to hear what it is Christ is saying, this message is coming from Christ himself. It's not designated to another individual, it's not a prophet, it's not an archangel, it is Jesus himself speaking. And he is speaking to all the churches. Not only to this church in Thyatira, and not only to the churches who would read this letter when it was passed around the region, but to all New Testament Christians, to all New Testament churches for all time, Jesus is saying to us who have an ear to hear, let him hear what I am saying to the churches. It's a very difficult teaching, Nobody likes to hear the potential rebuke that is going to come, but we need to hear it. We need to understand what Jesus is saying to us because if we allow our lives to slide down the slippery slope of immorality and idolatry and we spurn the call and the invitation to repent, then you and I may very well face the kind of discipline and punishment that is being spelled out here that we would not wish to come on anyone. Would you join me in prayer, please? And Father, we thank You for Your eternal Word spoken to us today. I pray, Father, that we would not be quick to point at others and think about how necessary it is for others to heed this message, but we would examine our own heart, our own life, our own commitment, and that we would be faithful to take you up on your offer to repent while there's time. That we would not spurn your grace and your mercy towards us, that we would not ignore your love, but instead we would, in a spiritual point of brokenness, kneel our hearts and our lives before you to commit to live for you and to acknowledge the true sovereign God that you are. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy that tolerates our sin. Help us to remember that you won't tolerate it forever. Might we remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as we consider the sin that we allow to be a part of our lives. May we desire a life that reflects greater holiness and purity because we love you, because we are committed to serve you and to obey you. May you find in us the lives that are pleasing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.